Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. We're in the middle of holiday season, Andy. We are, and you you got me making this uh, <laughs> this glug. Glug. Glug, glug. Andy, that's an umlaut. Glug. Glug. I wonder if uh, if any of our listening if any of our listeners do the glug. I'll bet some of them do. I have fallen in love with it. Have you fallen in love with it? I've never tried it before. Like I was going to make mulled wine for our holiday party for yeah. the New Year's, and then my wife's like sent me this recipe and is glug, and I'm yeah. like, oh, that's the thing that Pete made. I yes. should try it. Yes, it's just like trash booze. You just take all of you just. <laughs> you take all these like stuff that you normally wouldn't necessarily drink together and then you heat it and you put like orange peel and raisins, cranberries, nuts, almonds. We put almonds in there yep. and you just cook it. You just cook it. Right. And uh, we, uh, this was a thing we started about two weeks ago. I think we st- and, and when it starts running low, you just refill it just random. You don't measure. You just pour booze in there again. And, uh, and it is so it has become a staple. Your house smells like Christmas, and occasionally when you need a little warm-me-up, a little pick-me-up, warm-me-up, there you have it with your glug with an umlaut. Well, I'm looking forward to trying it. And so have you started I, I a, putting it together? Yeah, I did. Oh, I, I, I got it all put together in the pot. Do you smell uh, it yet? Today? Not yet because it's not heating. Right now it's oh. just kind of it's it's soaking in all the spices and everything, and then tomorrow I start, uh, I start cooking and I add more stuff to it and I got to get the almonds ready and uh yeah it's uh, it's quite a process. You know. It better be good. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, you're overthinking it. If you're doing this waiting overnight thing, no, you just pour it in and turn on the heat low and just let it go. <laughs> you're way overthinking. <laughs> you way overthinking. Well, there's a lot of recipes that I that I kept finding and this one is just like, yeah, start at 12 12 hours, get them in the pot tw- at least 12 hours before you start cooking it so everything can soak up <laughs> nicely together. Right so. out loud. No. I I'm telling you, I we turned it on just so I could drink it in a half hour. That's all. Hey, there that's you go. All that I care about. <laughs> well, I'm proud of you. I am very excited that you're doing this. I can't wait to hear the uh, the results. It should be fun. Glug. We should, should post fun. your post your glug review in the show notes. <laughs> of course, we should. Uh, Andy's. I'm adding it right now. <laughs> Andy's glug, glug review. Review. <laughs> yeah. So you can take care of that. Too funny. Uh, what else? Do you have anything else to report from your? I, I have one thing. One Star Wars related bit of follow up. Okay. Uh, I said in our show, I asked the film board if uh, Daniel Craig as JB007 Stormtrooper was his voice. You all said, no, you are all wrong. That is totally Daniel Craig's voice. I I agreed. Fourth viewing, I listened <laughs> really closely. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that is Daniel Craig doing yes. an American voice. I completely agree now. Yes. I was wrong. I admit it. I just wanted to get that out there. I had to clear the air. I knew that if there was anything like that between us, we wouldn't be able to have an honest conversation. That's right. It's just hanging there. It's just hanging there. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, the big, the the one thing that I had promised myself that I would do before uh, we talked again is see the Big Short, and I haven't done it. 
Ah, uh, I did see that. I we had our uh, annual anniversary movie-thon, my wife and I, and we saw that Creed finally and uh, Sisters. So, okay. uh, well, a happy anniversary. Well, thank you. And uh, B, just tell me, did you love it? You know, it's. I think that I was. <laughs> I was really surprised that uh, Adam McKay made a film that was so good. Um, but <laughs> man, did it make me so angry! It made me so mad. It, it was yeah. one of those films that just. It just really got under my skin because it's just everything in it is just so wrong and bad. It's yeah, but in but presented in a very beautiful uh, artistic cinematic way. Yeah, and very fun. Yeah, um, and it, it was really interesting the way that he um, approached topics by bringing in celebrities to kind of pitch it to you. <laughs> I I think this is we're going to look back on this as a film that really only Adam McKay could have made. Yeah, that he has that sensibility that to make this an approachable like this is this is going to be one of those films that for me it's going to feel like a Moneyball. It's it was really interesting. I mean, I don't know if I liked the characters as much as I liked them in Moneyball, but I did. Uh, but I did really like the presentation of the whole story. Yeah, and uh, but you know these sorts of movies always get me frustrated anyway because by the time it's done. I try to remember some of the specifics. I'm like, well, I don't quite remember how this, how that stuff worked. <laughs> Just, yeah, not quite my thing. Yeah, well, I, I can't wait to see it. That's one of those one of those things I need to sneak out to do, but it's been... A, Definitely you do. Obviously been a busy couple of weeks. See, I have these this section here, this follow-up section. Mm. Star Wars feedback, Gremlins feedback, Pony Prize feedback. Right. Uh, I think my only bit of... Uh, Gremlins feedback to a uh, friend of the show and Facebook uh, commenter or emailer, uh, Moni. Uh, of course, the reason we did Gremlins is because I had such a crush on Phoebe Cates. Uh, end of feedback. I think we both pretty pretty um, pretty much affirmed our crushes. Yeah, on Phoebe Cates yeah. I don't think that. I don't think that, that was discussing. a question. The, I don't think that. I, I think my my only thought is that she started. She commented on us or on the show before she started listening to it because I think we made our case pretty plain. I think so too. Okay. Uh, do we have any other feedback on Star Wars? Or are we done with that? I think we're done with Star Wars. Okay. Uh, and do we have any feedback on the Pony Prize? Um, feedback? Uh, yeah. I mean, people are thrilled that they <laughs> are going to be receiving it. I'm not <laughs> sure what. Other, I'm not sure what feedback Pe- people are thrilled. <laughs> What if we start speaking in the royal? <laughs> we the people are thrilled that we will be receiving the prizes of the ponies. Uh, no, it's a trap. Uh, okay, that's it for the. I think we should just probably just tell the people where we're from. Yes, where are we from? This is the next reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that right over there is Andy Nelson. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, it's a big, fat, happy new year with Paul Thomas Anderson's 1997 Boogie Nights. That's something. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And 
For all you who've given yourselves a good once-over in the mirror when no one else is looking, you should head over to the Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. But this week, folks, we've decided to give Stephen a week off, so no trip to Scotland. Instead, we thought we'd have a chat with our 2015 t-shirt and poster designer, Joel Micah Harris. Joel Micah Harris. Uh, it's been too long, my friend. Welcome to uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, glad to have you. This year, you know, we were so stoked for Star Wars... Uh, that we decided to do an homage to one of our favorite series. It deserved proper treatment. And so we just came to you and said, hey, bleh, here's this here's this idea. What do you think of this? Well, it was a little bit more complicated than that. You uh, actually had sent me a, uh, a poster from the first Star Wars. Is that right? Yeah, that's one of the original. Yeah, one of the originals, poster. right. Yeah, and uh, you said, you know, basically just... Uh, kind of inspiration for me to to go off of and uh as i was piecing it together based on the five films that you guys uh ranked the highest in flick chart this year i was basically uh, putting the the pieces together and realizing that this kind of fits in with the exact um you know design of the original poster so i sent pete an email saying okay picture instead of darth vader fill in the blank you know instead of luke Skywalker put this person there, et cetera, and it just kind of fell into place from there. And I think, uh, I think it worked out really well. I well, I, needless to say, we do too. How do you? Yes. How do including, you? Including ponies. Yeah, <laughs> you worked ponies yes. into it. I, I love it so somehow. Much. You know, we made it work. I didn't think it was possible, but it worked. I think. How do you? Oh, yes. Can you just talk a little bit about your process? Like, how do you actually sure. do these things? Okay, well, in this case, it was um, actually simplified because I didn't have to actually do the design uh, conceptually as far as laying it out. Um, so thank you, Pete, for that. <laughs> you took <laughs> well, care of that part. <laughs> but um, what I did was essentially I, I took that original poster and I, uh, where I could, I would get reference photos. And I would kind of do kind of a, a collage in Photoshop. And then I would... Uh, it's, I don't want to get too technical, but I would just like, create layers. And on each layer, I would um, digitally ink with uh, a Wacom pen and tablet um, the characters. And, uh, you know, I, I would just digitally, literally draw over the original characters on the poster um, if I didn't have reference. Um, can we give spoilers as to what, which characters are on the poster or, or is that? I, I yeah. what do you, what do you think, Andy? Is it all right? I think it's all right. I think it's yeah, right. totally. Fair. Yes, let's give spoilers. Okay, so in in the case of uh, let's say Mason from Snowpiercer, um, I I had photo reference for her face, so I kind of you know pasted that onto to Princess Leia's body, and this is kind of you know weird uh, fan fiction material going on here, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And then, uh, you know, I basically uh, just created a layer over that and I digitally uh, drew over that. And I, you know, literally on the fly while I was drawing over Princess Leia's body, I, I just drew what uh, Mason was wearing in, in Snowpiercer. So, and then, um, you know, the, the coloring process is uh, just a more advanced uh, process, um, slightly more advanced than uh, taking crayons to a coloring book. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make there it you sound it. so easy. Yeah, I, you know, you mentioned the magic button earlier. I pushed the magic button, and boom! And there it so, is. There well, it is. It's, it yeah. it looks uh, far more uh, uh, beautifully complex than you make it sound. It's just fantastic. Well, 
you know, I was hesitant to put uh, ponies in the in the uh, in the photo, but I, I did it for you guys. And then uh, Pete suggested adding a monkey, so I'm like, you know what? Why not? We have ponies. Let's put a, <laughs> put a monkey in there. So, what what more could you ask for? You've got ponies. You've got a monkey. You've got five great films represented. So, six really. Well, yeah, exactly. Our film board film. Yeah, I was just realizing. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Well, it, it is terrific. And uh, so this year we're doing, uh, we've released not only a um, the, the t-shirt, but we're going to be putting this on, on other things. We've got, uh, we've got a movie poster for the next reel this year that we're, that you can, you can pick up and, and all of these things uh, showcase just great, great uh, work of uh, Joel Micah Harris. So well, we, thank you. And I, I believe I heard you uh, mention underwear. <laughs> you know, if it's if we can do it, we're gonna do it. We're gonna put this right. everywhere, everywhere That's you great. can put Immortan Joe's giant head. Uh, well, who doesn't want that? I, who that doesn't alone. want that on their underwear? Yeah, <laughs> yep, I'll leave that one alone. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm just thrilled. I'm going to put this on, uh, everything I can, if I can buy it with, uh, with the, uh, with the next real poster this year on it, I'm going to do it. iPhone cases, you bet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, I'd be interested in some of that actually too. So. There you go. Well, this is, this is the place to, to do it. We're going to set it up on the website. You can uh, grab the, or uh, take the link just to the, to the store, but where would you like people to go find out more about you, Mr. Harris? Well, really, the only thing I'm actively uh, participating in is my art gallery at jomiha.net. That's J-O-M-I-H-A.net. Um, I am on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm not very active in the uh, social media circles these days. So I would say, yeah, just go to jomiha.net. You should definitely, great. yes, go to Joe Miha. You can subscribe to the Joe Miha uh, email uh, and you can check out. You've got to check out because all, I don't know where you get inspired to do this stuff, but man, the month of December was great uh, with a, a series of, of punk icons yeah. uh, that you did. That was just terrific. I mean, everything Thank that you. You, you you touch is just great, but I'm, I really loved it. And the, uh, of course, the, the uh, Lemmy... Uh, yeah, the Lemmy piece was inspired. So yeah, I was uh, like many other fans. I was bummed out that Lemmy Kilmeister, you know, he he was seemingly immortal, and to find out he uh, he passed away was pretty saddening. So uh, I think I, I drew that piece uh, that same night that he had passed away. And, but yeah, I, I I wanted to give that one a little bit of the edge that Lemmy had, which I don't normally uh, put in my artwork, but I. I still censored it a little yeah. bit. <laughs> a little bit, but appropriately so. Yeah. Well, yeah. it is uh it's just uh, lovely work. So jomiha.net, check you. it out and uh, and thank you so much Joel for for just participating and lending your craft to this uh, this year's art. It's as always. Uh, thank you for trip. the opportunity. I, I had a blast doing it and uh, we'll be back next year, right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Count on. Awesome. Excellent. You may know Ben as the winner of the 2015 Pony Prize. Uh, we know him as the Blotspot. And he shared his thoughts on Gremlins. He said, I feel like you're expecting some kind of negative reaction from me on Gremlins, but I yes. found it to be a lot of fun. <laughs> the humor worked well, and I absolutely loved the puppet work. Gizmo was too cute for words, and Dying Stripes Stripe was absolutely revolting, which was cool. 
I think the biggest shortcoming in the movie is it gets bogged down a little too much in gremlin antics, particularly in the bar and movie theater. Because of this, I started to lose track where the protagonists were. Still, it was a fun movie and a great alternative holiday film for those who hate Christmas. Your rank, 132 out of 216. My rank, 77 out of 216. I, I, why, Andy, did I expect a negative reaction uh, from Ben on gremlins? Why was that, why was that so clear in my head? We're going to do this movie, he's going to hate it. I think he usually is not a fan of horror movies, but, uh, you know, it is that that fun blend of kind of comedy horror. And I think it now, looking at it now, it certainly uh, emphasizes the comedy over the horror. I think the little uh, young self, when I first saw this in the movie theater, the horror was a little more, a little more emphatic, but, uh, you know, Hmm. times change. Well, uh, I certainly uh, appreciate that. And I love being surprised uh, by our weekly plot spot, so. This was a good one. Uh, Andy, I think it's time. Let's do trailers. So my trailer, Pete, Mm -hmm. is Desierto. Do you have to say it like uh, that to see it? You do. Otherwise, they won't let you in. It's (laughs) That's just part of it. Okay. All right. I'll try. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, this this is the follow-up. Alfonso Cuaron and his son... Um, are following up uh, Gravity, which we all loved. We talked about on the show in one of our film boards a couple years ago. This is the follow-up, Desierto. And this is a group of people trying to cross the border from Mexico into the U.S. And they encounter a man who basically has taken up being a Border Patrol person on his uh, on by himself and uh, just basically taking people out. And Jeffrey Dean Morgan is basically hunting down these immigrants. And it looks uh, it looks like a really interesting film. And as this is something that we regularly hear stories about in Arizona, not quite to this extreme, I thought it would actually be a fitting trailer to discuss. So, uh, yeah, Gael uh, Garcia Bernal plays uh, Moises, a guy who's crossing with a group, and uh, they see another group, and then all of a sudden they start getting picked off. And uh, and then it basically looks like it's kind of a horror movie is really what it looks like, right? One of these uh, kind of uh, horror movies where... People are on the run, and somebody is slowly picking them off one by one. And uh, it just looks really freaky. And it, I think it also is very fitting with kind of, you know, just kind of the situation going on along our border right now. So I'm quite excited to see this one. Um, uh, Jonas Cuaron is actually directing this one, and his dad, Alfonso, is producing. And so it looks really interesting. I'm quite excited to see it. What do you think? I, uh, you know, I, there are a couple of things I can't quite get past as somebody who lives in the sponge that is Oregon. It's really hot. Uh, yes. On the border. It is, it is really hot. And I think it just looks super hot. <laughs> he really nailed that. Uh, I, I love it. I love the, the whole, the introducing the horror in the trailer when you have the whole group standing there in the middle of that wide open space and they just start falling. Uh, I thought that was just terrifying. The dog is terrifying. I mean, just everything about it really looks like it captures um, the terror of isolation and the, the feast that animals and snakes and things could have upon you if you were really um, running for your life in that situation. So I don't have the context that you do because I, we don't we don't have those kinds of stories. Uh, we don't we don't hear so much about the border stuff, uh, you know, up here. Uh, you know, for me, it's it's just a man, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, one of my favorites. Uh, so you can bet I'll be there. You know, it's funny when I was watching the trailer at first, 
I thought that it was Antonio Banderas because he looked so much like him. With it's the like, beard. That's a really, yeah, it's like, that's a really interesting twist. Yeah. Having uh, Antonio Banderas play a guy who's actually taking these people out. But no, it's Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Yeah. They just both have that very similar looking graying beards right now. I'm telling you, it does change my uh, change my opinion about cacti. It, it, let me just say, it reinforces my opinion about cacti. Yes, yes. They're not fun things. They don't belong. They, <laughs> they yeah, the, don't belong. The desert is a very grueling place. It, uh, it's designed to hurt you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scorpions, rattlesnakes, cacti, it, heat. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not a fun place. Hey, Why do I live here? I don't speak- know. <laughs> <laughs> when's, it, when's it coming out? It, it comes out March 4th. So speaking of things that are designed to uh, hurt you. Yes. Uh, predictably, I'm doing Deadpool. New trailer uh. came out. <laughs> uh, director Ten Miller, uh, Tim Miller, uh, Rob Liefeld uh, wrote the character, uh, uh, along with Fabian Nichesa. Uh, but the screenplay uh, was written by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. Um, that we have talked about this before. I can't wait for this movie, this is the movie that Ryan Reynolds was born to play. It, the character he was born to play was he not seriously Wade Wilson Deadpool? He is perfect uh, in this character. I am such I'm so bullish on him in this role. The trailer shows a lot of great character stuff uh, of him as Deadpool. Uh, we see more of the making of Deadpool. We see more of his his transformation in the lab. Uh, we we see more of Marina Baccarin's character as as uh, a copycat in this uh, in, in the film, and she looks great. Um, I, sometimes I feel like the, uh, the the stretch to create quote strong female characters. Uh, we go a bridge too far in the scripts when we hear things like damsel in distress is not a role I usually play. That kind of turns me off especially after seeing such a great uh delivery of of uh, uh ray in in star wars and so uh you know there are those kinds of things that i could i could let go of those little quips um but uh, otherwise i'm very excited to see this we do see uh colossus and, and yes. of course we see uh, a negasonic teenage warhead ellie Fimister, Fimister, i think i'm not sure I'm, i've never heard it uh, uh played by brianna hildebrand and of course the always hysterical tj miller Love that dude. It looks really funny. I I never really knew who Deadpool was. My only experience was the uh, Wolverine movie where Ryan Reynolds played Deadpool and yeah. his mouth got sealed shut. Right. So that I really had no idea who this character was. And um, but I kept seeing everybody dressing like Deadpool at Comic Con. It's like okay, so it's clearly a popular character. I it just wasn't in my in my uh, circles. And then I saw the trailer and I got it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. This is why people love this character so much. Um, it's definitely an over-the-top comic book movie that you're not going to be taking your kids to see. It's pretty raunchy. Um, I I still think it looks pretty funny. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see this one. And uh, I'm curious to see how it, uh, how it ends up playing out. Because it's definitely not your average uh, Marvel or DC sort of comic book movie. That's the thing that I wonder if they're, you know, um, how do they, how do they integrate Deadpool into, you know, X-Men? Yeah, right. Right. Um, and, and I don't, I don't know where this, do you know anything about the politics of this particular film? Like where does it exist between X-Men and, and the other Marvel um, production? Is this, this is strictly Marvel, right? I think so. 
I think it's strictly Marvel. I think it's, I think it's just Marvel. But it's but it's Fox. So it's on the Fox side of the fence with uh with the X-Men properties and um Oh, this is actually an X-Men Origins film. I I did not know that. Yeah, it's it's in that side of things. Yeah. So, uh, so but but I don't know to me it just doesn't seem like they can safely bring Deadpool into the X-Men yeah. films because yeah. it just doesn't seem like the sort of thing that that crowd, like a parent can't take a, their kids to Deadpool. Right. Um, so they're not going to take their kids to an X-Men movie with Deadpool in it. Right. If they keep Deadpool kind of this way. Right. Right. That's the thing. This is Deadpool couldn't really be Deadpool in, you know, Apocalypse. Right. Exactly. Um so but it's anyhow. but I do like I do like that they're branching out and doing different things and this goes back to what we said with comic book movies how the next step is to make them not just a comic book movie but to actually give them different genres and different uh, a different feel like you know Captain America had the the second one had a more kind of political conspiracy thriller sort of vibe to it. This one has this kind of dark comedy edge to it. And so it's, it's nice seeing that they are kind of playing with that as they explore different, uh, different types of comic book movies. Well, I, you know, I think when, when we get to that real sort of, uh, when they're really taking uh, those kinds of risks, I think we'll end up seeing more, uh, seeing a film version of Jessica Jones. You know, where it's a it's a comic book character, but it's a character that um, you know that doesn't wear the spandex, right? right? That that's the next the next level of sort of maturity I would love to see is this character with these strange abilities and also trying to integrate in in life. You know the the new uh, I think it was released as part of the new what was the new fifty four or whatever it was the the uh, the most recent Hawkeye uh, uh, comic is Hawkeye when he's at home. Like, it's all the stories of Hawkeye when he's not, you know, huh. on the team. And that's the story of Clint Barton that I actually would be really interested in seeing. Uh, and seeing Jeremy Renner and, um, you know, h- hanging out with Linda Cardellini uh, on their ranch and what are the th- action set pieces that come to them? You know, what are the what are the things that he does when he's not actually, um, you know, an Avenger? Oh, that's kind of that would be kind of interesting. Yeah, Yeah. I I would like to see that sort of branching out. I'm I'm eager for that kind of branching out that that um, I don't I don't think we've seen yet. Anyway, Deadpool hits uh, February twelfth, two thousand sixteen. Even though he's in spandex, I can't wait to see it. Andy, Pete, when I close when I close my eyes, I see this thing, a sign. I see this name in in bright blue neon lights with a purple outline. And this name is so bright and so sharp that the sign, it just blows up because the name is so powerful. It says, Dirk Diggler. Everyone's given one special thing, right? Everyone's blessed with one special thing. I want you to know I plan on being a star. A big, bright, shining star. Any Adams from Torrance? Yep. Jack Horner, filmmaker. I make it. Exotic pictures. In 1977, a kid from nowhere made me think about your name. My name, yeah. Something a little pizzazz. Dirk Diggler. Good name. I like your name a lot. Had a dream of getting somewhere. Jack Horner has found something special in newcomer Dirk Diggler. So let me just pop in this A-track, and you just give a listen and tell him what you think, okay? 
It was a time when disco was king. These are the ones. These are great. Yeah, those are really cool. Are they lizard? No, they're Italian. Do you like my shoes? They're pretty cool. Sex was safe. <laughs> Pleasure was a business. Cut. Terrific. Nice work. And business was booming. And the award for best newcomer goes to Mr. Dirk Fiddler. Wow. Here we are, Andy. This mm. is the one, 1997. It's our Happy New Year movie. Happy New Year, Pete. <laughs> you, know who, <laughs> you know who else loves Happy New Year movies like this? William H. Macy. <laughs> Boy, does he. If you want to celebrate New Year's, you celebrate like William H. Macy. Woo, that's dark. That is dark. <laughs> this is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, starring everybody. Uh, Pretty much. This film. Wow, this film has a lot of people in it. Um, uh, our protagonist, the young, uh, the uh, cut from marble, Mark Wahlberg, uh, and mentored by the great Burt Reynolds, uh, mothered by the uh, lovely Julianne Moore, uh, and uh, brothered by John C. Riley. How's that? The whole family. <laughs> it is whole a whole family. mixed up family. And you uh, could say sistered by uh, Heather Graham. By Heather Graham. <laughs> He's sistered. <laughs> sistered by Heather Graham. Uh, this movie, uh, I got to tell you, Andy, I don't feel guilty when I say, well, let me just say this. What would? What did you expect me to say about this movie? I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like we've talked about it and I feel like we both like it. So <laughs> I assumed I, I expected you to say you liked it. Well, then you cheated. It's like you read ahead. <laughs> I will tell you, I loved this movie. I actually loved it even more now. And I I just loved looking into it and looking into the background of it and thinking about it. Uh, I think it is there is so much more of a story here uh, of, of this cultural reflection I love so much to think about uh, than, than I had even remembered. And so I was deeply satisfied by this film uh, in this particular viewing. What about are you, you? Are you saying it satisfied you? <laughs> Deeply. <laughs> should should not have said that. I should this is not gonna be have one said of these that. shows, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> this is this is why we're PG. <laughs> Big deep satisfaction. <laughs> oh man, you don't have to hang a flag on it. <laughs> I, I this is a great movie. I mean, it really is a solid story. It's a dark story, and I feel dirty every time I watch it, but there's so much here. I think that the characters that Paul Thomas Anderson put together are such fascinating people, despite the kind of the dark world in which they inhabit and the dark paths that they definitely take over the course of the film. Um, I think that uh, for his second film, I think Anderson really shows a lot of uh, filmmaking bravura. Is that how you say that word? Bravura? Bravura? <laughs> <laughs> yes, what it is. I was just about those, to taunt you. It was one of those words that's like you say it, it sounds stupid. Is that a real word? <laughs> it was good. You know, you, delivery was right on. You, should roll, you should roll your R's. Bravura. Yeah. <laughs> you were saying? Oh, Lord Almighty. <laughs> it's really, boy, is he sharp as a tack. <laughs> uh, he's a great uh he's a great filmmaker and uh 
out of the gate, well, with his second film, I think he really shows he's not afraid to uh, to try things and take chances and uh, tell stories that may not be ones that people um, easily latch onto. And I think that it it just really kind of showed the world that uh, he's a filmmaker that is worth noticing and one that we definitely should be paying attention to. And I think, you know, his body of work, for the most part since then, I think it's definitely, um, he's proven that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think the, uh, just the artistry in, in constructing the film is it, it just terrific. It's it, If you haven't seen it, which I, I assume you have uh, by now if you're listening to this show, uh, but if you haven't seen it, it's a story of uh, adult film director Jack Horner. Uh, he's, uh, that's uh, Burt Reynolds. He's the, the uh, grizzled veteran of the porn industry. He's on the lookout for new talent. And he meets uh, at Dirk Diggler's, uh, or, or I should say Mark Wahlberg's, Eddie Adams before he takes his stage name. He's a busboy in their in their club, uh, a club run by uh, Luis Guzman, who is just hysterical in this film as an, uh, a club owner uh, aspiring to be a uh, porn actor. Um, and uh, it turns out that uh, Eddie Adams uh, is well endowed, a young man, and he is paid uh, five to ten dollars to uh, show off his wares, and that's uh, that. So he has a little bit of background, and he jumps into uh, the porn industry uh, that way. It's a, it is uh, dare I say a Cinderella story. Would you agree? <laughs> yeah, that's I think a, a good way to describe the movie. <laughs> it and I mean I think that um, you know Anderson has said you know he, as a, as a fan of porn at least particularly at the time of his life when he put this together. Uh, I mean, he kind of explored the the golden age of uh, of the porn world, which happened in the late 70s. I think it started kind of early 70s into the 80s when video was introduced. And he kind of used that as this world to kind of paint this. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about this is you have such an interesting character with... Um, um, Burt Reynolds, Jack Horner, as this guy who really sees more to these films that he's making than just your average smut. And I think that that's uh, such an interesting way to kind of look at this, that these are people who see that they can kind of make a quote-unquote art with this uh, within this world in which they're working. And I love that you get this development in... Eddie Adams's character, and as he becomes Dirk Diggler, and then as he and and his buddy John C. Riley, uh, Reed Rothschild, as they kind of uh, kind of go the way of um, I'm going to blank on that porn actor's name, uh, John Holmes, yeah, um, who had that character Johnny Wad. Um, he uh, uh, Dirk Diggler kind of creates his own character that's kind of along the lines of this Johnny Wad character. It's kind of a a porn character, but he fights crime and, and, uh, you know, it's just like they create these really stupid stories, but people were interested in those sorts of, you know, porn movies that had a little more story to it. And I, it's interesting to see kind of that progression in this as it leads into the world of, of uh, video and the eighties and everything falling apart. Well, and that is, that's one of the things that excites me so much about this movie is that this is not a movie about sex. Right, right. Yeah. This is that. This is a movie in, uh, about uh, massive, uh, the massive, just sort of tectonic shift in industry uh, that 
that completely upended these people's lives right in in so many ways these are just ordinary people and they have the their dreams of fame and stardom and that's just that's a story we've heard countless times right that that you know i i could be somebody you know i could have been a contender here but but in this case these people are are using the the sort of palette of the sex industry the porn industry uh, as a way to tell these stories of ordinary people who are striving for greatness and they're doing everything they can to make the choices that that they know how to make uh, to be successful while the industry is changing around around them. I mean, this could just as easily been, you know, a story around the coal mines. It could have been around the steel industry in Detroit. It could have been, you know, whatever it is when technology comes in and and upends your industry, um, this is the story of that fallout. And I think for me, appreciating this film in that light makes it just that much more powerful a story watching these characters kind of kind of unravel, um, uh, you know, as they as they kind of reap the fruits of, of their lives uh, in the third act. Well, and I think what's so important is that it's, uh, aside from that, it's also about family, right? It's about this, this uh, beautiful relationship that these people have as they kind of, these are lost souls. I mean, we really see that with, with uh, Mark Wahlberg's character. We see him really kind of struggling with his own family. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, I think, such an amazing relationship that we see. And there's so little of it, but I love the relationship between him and his mother, um, that it's it's just this it's this really painful world that he's coming from. Uh, Joanna Gleason playing his mother, and then you see a little bit of his father, who's just kind of not around. But there's a there's trouble in his in his home life, and it's really painful. And you never really get a sense as to what's causing it. You just get this sense that that his mother has issues that she's dealing with, and she takes a lot of it out on her son. And the father is there, but he's really not present and he doesn't know how to deal with any of it. And it's very, it's very difficult and it's painful. And that could be a movie in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. That could be a really interesting family struggle as, as this son, Eddie, tries to figure out, um, you know, what, how to deal with his parents because he just can't connect with them and, and his mother is taking everything out on him. That's a really interesting story right there. and it's uh, But it's just a tiny part of this movie as we see how it breaks Eddie. And it's so painful to watch him as um, he has that fight with his mother as she kind of kicks him out of the house. And, uh, and which, he... which is so good, right? Because that not that such a sign of respect for the audience that, in fact, we don't get much of that backstory that we, we know that story, right? We've internalized oh, yeah. that story already. So we get just enough that we need so that we understand his motivation to leave. And, and the rest we get. Right. And then we see him welcomed with open arms by Jack Horner uh, into this, this world. And, I mean, we already know that... Eddie is well endowed, and he's probably somebody who can go far in this particular industry. But it's more than that. It's the fact that this is a group of people who welcome him and take him in for who he is, and they respect him, and they want to to be a part of his life, and they want uh, him to be a part of theirs. And I think that's what's really important, is that this this familial dynamic becomes so key here throughout the film as we explore this other world, like you were talking about, how this technology is changing all of these people's lives. And I think that's what's 
I find so fascinating is that Anderson is really looking at all of this as he explores this uh, this group of people. You know, I think that's a really interesting point that, um, you know, about this discussion of family. Um, first of all, this film really is, I think you're, you're right on, this is very much about what is the value or what is the, what is the definition of, of family when you take away the biological constraint. Um, because very much there is a family atmosphere at Horner's house, right? That's just where they are. And they use the trappings and the language, the vernacular of family. There's a particular scene in the third act with, um, you know, uh, Julian Moore and Heather uh, Graham, where, you know, Heather actually says, you know, as Roller Girl, I want you to be my mom. Will you please be my mom? And and you see that just that that crying out for that sort of maternal support, even though there's no biological connection uh, between them at all. So I think that's uh, that's really interesting. The other thing that I think is interesting and where we get into the, the more sort of defined fantasy of the film is just how perfect the 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 adult film industry is that we are introduced to in this film, right? The the first yeah. the first act, uh, and and really into the second act, um, the the adult film industry as represented by Jack Horner's world and the Colonel's world is perfect. It is the ideal world, right? They're uh, they're people. They enjoy one another's company. They have these great lavish, you know, parties. They're very casual. They have lots of sex with one another, and that's okay, and there are no complications at all until uh, until we start seeing the first sign of complication that little Bill, uh, played by William H. Macy, his wife, played by Nina Hartley, uh, is, uh, she is, um, she's a nymphomaniac and an exhibitionist, and she has sex with everybody, and she'll do it in a parking lot with, like, 15 guys standing around, uh, and she is incredibly abusive to her husband, uh, verbally abusive to her husband. Yeah. And and that's the first sort of straw that we that we get to pull out, and that one continues to sort of unravel the thread of this perfect tableau that that Anderson creates uh, in this script, and that ends up being sort of the porn fairy tale, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's it is that wonderful life, and and he sets it up. Uh, Anderson sets that up so nicely at the beginning of the film. You know, once he's introduced to this world. It's just you know we get that that uh, um, wonderful period of just nothing but celebration of this, right? I mean, all the awards that they win and all the 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 wonderful clothes they get to buy, and you know, there's even a dance sequence where everybody all of a sudden busts out into the, <laughs> the perfectly choreographed uh, disco, which is um, hilarious, and I just love that that it fits so well in there, and I think. I think his filmmaking uh, style, aside from the fact that it works so well telling this story as how it how it unfolds, but I think that Anderson's filmmaking itself exemplifies all of those story points as well. It's such a fluid um, movement with his camera all through the film. He really has, you can see his influences from Martin Scorsese. He says uh, Jonathan Demme is a big influence. Robert Altman, all these different filmmakers have a lot of um, 
a lot of stuff that he's pulled from, and you can really see in the in the way that the camera moves through the film a lot of the Scorsese um, the vibe that we have going on here, and then also the cutting the way that uh, Dylan Titchener cuts the film together. It's just it's cut in a way, and the camera moves in a way where everything feels alive and it's really exciting, and all of that works so well to paint this picture. Well, you've got to talk some more about tracking shots, the utility of tracking shots in this film in particular, because this isn't just a film with one of those legendary tracking shots, uh, you know, particularly the opening shot, which, you know, it, it introduces us to the world as we follow Luis Guzman. Uh, and, and it's great. And it it, it is a, a beautiful way to introduce us to all of our key characters in the film, in, in the, the part of the world that they uh, interact within. But this whole film is an extension of tracking shots. And uh, I mean, they're everywhere. Oh yeah, like, uh, and and like so talk the party, about the house, yeah. Uh, talk about the about you know why the uh, you know why do so many tracking shots work so well in this film? Where other films, I might say, wow, that's overkill. And I've said so on, in, for example, in Robert Altman films, like I, it becomes tiresome. Uh, but for some reason, in this film, it works. What is your take on that? My sense is that it feels uh, it has a much more modern feel. I think Altman. Uh, Altman works in context of kind of Altman films, but I I also can find sometimes his films to be just a little much. Um, I think it feels modern in the way that he's he's doing it here, and I think I think Anderson is um, has a sense of fluidity in not just the way the camera moves, but in the way that the story is told, and it goes really quickly, and I think. Um, it, it almost has kind of an Edgar Wright sort of feel to it, the way that things move fast. And I think that's, for me, I think that's why it works well here, because we're meeting all these characters, uh, wham, bam, like in the beginning. And I don't know how long that tracking shot is, a couple minutes where we're yeah. kind of moving through the uh, the club. Uh, we meet so many characters. It's moving so fast. We're just getting little hints of conversation, not even conversation that really plays into anything, but you just get little bits and pieces that just kind of give you a sense of who these characters are. As we're flying along and and leading up to um, to Eddie as he kind of makes that connection with um, uh, with Jack's character. And it just moves fast, and likewise at the party. And you see a lot of that fast stuff happening at uh, the first party when when Eddie comes to Jack's place and he has that big pool party. And you've got seen things happening where the camera, it goes through the house and you see all these characters. But then the camera follows a girl as she goes outside and jumps into the pool and the camera jumps into the water with her and goes underwater with her before it comes back up. That's not something I would say... I've seen it in an Altman film. Now I haven't. I'm not as familiar with all of Altman's work, but I don't think that he's done anything quite that alive, where it, the camera is actually so interactive in in those moments. So I don't know. For me, that's that would be kind of what I think uh, as why it's working more for us, perhaps. You know, there's an interesting mechanic that that strikes me that I want to go back and watch the film again because I, I it only occurred to me at the end uh, is that. The, one of the initial setups that we get for this tracking shot is is we see a woman on wheels, right? With Roller Girl, yeah. uh, she is. it's like she's flying through the set. And for some reason, for me, as I watch that visually, um, I am able to 
kind of be a part of her POV a little bit. And so the tracking shot suddenly makes a lot more intuitive sense to me as I move through the spaces of this film. And once I'm introduced to that mechanic in the opening sequence, that opening three-minute through the Hot Tracks Club, every other tracking shot allows me to take part in a roller skating tour of the of the set and uh, and the sequence i should say and i i adore that for me it's a very visceral sort of physical personal invitation to be a part of the film in a way that few films allow me to do and i think the mechanic setting it on uh, you know putting a character on wheels the whole time is both great for her character but it's also interestingly good for the mechanics of the camera what do you think yeah no i think that's a really uh a, astute observation the fact that we actually are taken into the camera movement through a character i think that's that's a brilliant way of uh, of picking up on that Whew, man i was hoping for a point that's good i got some points on the board tonight <laughs> I'm a shining star. You're a star. You're a big, bright, shining star. <laughs> big, bright, shining star. Uh, anyway, this film is an exercise in tracking shots. You should check them out and do some uh, do some Google searches for uh, images of the of the maps. There are some folks who have made some really beautifully detailed maps of the tracking shots through the through uh, uh, different scenes in Boogie Nights that are fun to watch. Did you happen to get a chance to watch the Dirk Diggler story? You know, I feel like I watched that. When I first got the DVD of this, I feel like I watched it, um, but honestly, I can't remember. Um, I know that it's the short that he made, kind of a mockumentary, um, when he was still in high school. He did, yeah, in high yeah. school. Uh, this was the it, it was the story of Dirk Diggler. It was supposed to be, uh, you know, according to Anderson uh, at the time, it was uh, it's a half hour, it's about thirty one minutes, and you can find it on YouTube. I've linked to it in the show notes. It is a half hour on the background of Dirk Diggler that it, that he made in mockumentary style. And in an interview with Charlie Rose, uh, when this came out, when the Boogie Nights came out, he, you know, he said, I feel like I, I made that 31 minutes and I apparently had two more hours to add to it. And that's what Boogie Nights is. So uh, it, it's actually interesting to watch. Obviously, it was shot all on um, all on, on tape and uh, <laughs> it was shot on video cassette, which is an interesting, um, you know, ironic twist that the right. film ends up being about the transition to video. Um, but um, it was... It was an interesting thing to watch today. I I found myself really, it was you know it wasn't great, but you could see hints of Paul Thomas Anderson in it, and, right, right, uh, right, and it was it was delightful kind of um, icing on on the cake that is this film. And Michael Stein played Dirk Diggler in that, and I think in this he's the customer in, in the actual movie. I think he's the he's the stereo store customer who gets turned off by. By Buck. Swope's uh, tunes, yeah, right, right <laughs> country right. tunes, right. and then uh, Robert Ridgely played Jack Horner in the short, and he, of course, um, has a much bigger part in as this. The Colonel, as the Colonel, right? Who who makes one of the more interesting uh, makes for one of the more interesting characters because there are these, you know, there are the porn stars, right? There are the there we'll call them kind of the kids, right? They they come in and they they're the actors, uh, and then there are there's kind of the the technicians the technicians and they watch and they have their own weird quirks oh my god philip seymour hoffman <laughs> uh and and then there are these the the patriarchs right and we have we're introduced to three of them right uh, we have obviously jack horner who's the director and filmmaker and artiste uh we have the colonel who's the the money man the investor behind these things a producer and we have the uh the theater owner uh, who is played by um, Philip um, Philip Baker Hall? Philip Baker Hall, 
right? Those are the three sort of patriarchs of, of the film. These are the, the men who, uh, the, the old white men who run this interpretation of the industry. Was, and Phil Baker Hall, I thought he was uh, another money man, but more in line of the video side of things rather than, well, was, that was, was he the, a theater owner? Well, that was the thing. That's what his first meeting with, uh, with uh, uh, Jack. Jack is to come in and say, look, I've been in the theater business for a long time, and I'm telling you, we have to change. We right. have to get into video, and I want your actors so that we can start making videos. Uh, and so, you know, my my interpretation was he was the infrastructure guy. He was like, you know, sure. I'm used to this. I'm used to, to funding films and getting films in front of people, but now we, we need to move to video. And, um, and so... That's what he represents. And I think what's, you know, for me, back to the colonel, the colonel is the big money guy. Um, you know, the way we're introduced to them again in this art, in the, the sort of the artifice of the fantasy of porn industry, uh, they're, they're the perfect guys to kind of run this thing. They're, they're nice. They supply everybody with the right amount of drugs and they take care of them. You know, when the, the girl ODs, says, take her to the hospital, leave her there, dump her there, don't attach her to me, but, <laughs> but take her to the hospital. Um, and he ends up getting uh, getting caught for child pornography uh, charges. Yeah, and Dark. is sent to jail, and is is ultimately um, you know portrayed as as a you know uh, he's beaten um, pretty badly in in jail for and so he doesn't handle uh, prison well, um, and so that transformation I think is interesting. What does that tell us? About about this world that that we have been a part of for the last two and a half hours, uh, when we see the patriarchs fall quite like that. Well, yeah, but it's like everybody. I mean, there's you have that sort of stuff going on in in all sorts of different stories. You've got you've got the dark drug story. You know, you've got uh, Todd coming in, and you've got that darkness that kind of uh, goes into it. You've got some of the the prostitution that comes in. You've got the 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 mothering issue that happens to Amber, uh, there's there's a lot of dark elements that kind of ride through um, everybody's different worlds, and I think it's I think it's a pretty interesting take on on all of it and how some of it works out well, like Buck and meeting uh, Melora Walters character and how they kind of hit it off and end up creating a family and in a very you know dark twist how he ends up getting funded to kind of make his own stereo company. Uh, but I think it's a really interesting look at some of the positives and negatives that that kind of come out of all of this, you know. I do, and I think that's a I think that's a really good point. There are two sequences of of uh, great action sequences in this film that are as exhilarating and intense as you know some of the great sequences in True Romance that we love so much. By way of setup, Don Cheadle's character is fantastic fantastic in this film yeah. uh he is an identity crisis porn star uh turned uh stereo hi-fi stereo uh, pitch man and he is great every bit of of incidental dialogue every passing sequence we get with him is perfect uh 
uh, whether it's from him trying out his cowboy costume to trying out his uh, glam costume, 70s glam costume, uh, to finally his white-on-white suit costume, which ends up being the one that sort of sticks. Uh, He's just terrific. So he goes into this donut shop, and he's picking up donuts for his pregnant wife who's in the car outside. Uh, And there is one other gentleman in the the donut restaurant, uh, the donut shop, eating his donuts and reading his paper. And Cheadle is being... Uh, served, and as the guy is is putting donuts in the box, a man comes in to rob the donut shop. So the the proprietor of the donut shop is putting money in in the in the bag. The money is in the bag from the safe, and then we have a uh, you know a, a civilian with a gun who pulls out the gun, shoots the robber. Robber falls back, shoots the uh, uh, the man with the gun. Man with the gun. Man with the gun accidentally goes off and shoots the donut shop owner, leaving no witnesses and a bag of money. And Don Cheadle suddenly has his stereo shop funded. And that was awesome. I mean, terrible. (laughs) And like ripped from the headlines, terrible. Uh, But the mechanics of the sequence worked so well uh, that I was able to look past it. And Cheadle's like look of horror uh, just sold it for me. Look of horror and then look of, I can't believe that this just happened. Yeah. And there's a bag of money and no one will know. And just the way he looks at at it, it's just so great. It plays so nicely. Well, and this really showcases is the influence of of Tarantino on Anderson's work, too. I mean, this really just feels very much like a Tarantino sequence. The 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 shift in tone, absolutely. I mean, the way that that it can go from, uh, you know, dramatic to to violent or or comedic definitely plays into a mm-hmm. Tarantino's rule book here. The other sequence I would love for you to reflect on a little bit is the sequence where we go uh meet um uh with Todd to deliver the baking soda. Yeah, um that's that's the sequence where uh this is kind of after uh, basically everything has kind of started falling and and um Dirk Diggler has kind of um, he's he has kind of I guess you could say broken up with Jack Horner. Um, they have uh, he and Reed have left and are you know doing drugs and they're trying to create a successful music career with some truly truly awful music. And um, they end up befriending this guy Todd, uh, played by Thomas Jane, who knows this guy who's got money. And this is actually pulled. Well, money and drugs. And this is kind of pulled also from Holmes's life uh, with the Wonderland murders. Um, he uh, basically, Thomas Jane's character says, hey, this guy has got a lot of drugs and, and uh, let's go buy some. Uh, no, let's go let's go sell him these, these drugs that we bought. I'm getting it all backwards. And so they go over to his house and he is freaking out on drugs. He's crazy, crazy man. Alfred Molina plays the most uh, whacked character um, just on drugs, standing in his Speedo and a robe. And he's got a, like a, a Chinese man throwing firecrackers as just kind of walking around the room, throwing these firecrackers. They're, he's jamming to tunes and they're trying to sell him this, these drugs and get the cash. And there's meanwhile, there's this, this big bodyguard there with a gun. And... It's it's the most intense scene the 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 way the firecrackers are going off the way that Alfred Molina plays just this kind of insanity of this character listening to the music and and trying to get them to stay and these guys are all kind of starting to freak out and then then we have um um 
the uh, um, Thomas Jane's character starts kind of saying, hey, I want everything else that's in your safe also, the safe that's under your bed, all of your money, all your drugs, I want everything, and turns this situation into something that's truly awful and terrifying. And meanwhile, we have Eddie Adams and Reed just sitting there like, what is going on? We got to get out of this freaking place. It is the most intense, terrifying sequence, and it's done so well. And the firecrackers, I, I think that is what really makes the scene. Because as the scene is playing, you've got this this constant little explosions going off. That's just, I mean, it is like, you know, I, I find myself flinching every time the actors are flinching. Because these things, it's like gunshots going off. It's it's real great, intense filmmaking at a perfect point in the film where your nerves are rattled and you're already on edge. That's what I was hoping that that was your reaction to the scene, too. I think those firecrackers are so annoying at first, and they become... Like like the central pulse of the entire sequence uh, so that by the end, I'm, I mean, really, you are amped up to 11. It's a, it is a fantastically thrilling um, and weirdly funny uh, sequence, particularly the resolution of it as they all, they, they kind of get out uh, and start running, at least Reed and, and uh, Dirk get out and they run to this now pretty much beaten up um, <laughs> competition orange Corvette Stingray. And uh, they have to, they start pushing it down the hill and Reed doesn't, isn't able to get in the car. He runs off into somebody's lawn and Dirk ends up pushing it back to, uh, uh, back over to Jack Horner's house. Because it's out of fuel. Because it's out of fuel, right. So it's, it ends up being just a really humbling, humiliating uh, sequence. And that ends up being the transformation for uh, a moment for, for Dirk to, to realize that he was, he was, um, you know, he was the little man and needed some, had to learn some lessons, and, and he ends up going back to apologize. And it, it ends up being a, a really wonderful, I think, sweet homecoming um, back into the arms of his father figure, the the only guy who had ever accepted him uh, in that capacity. And I, I think that worked really well. And it works really well for me for Burt Reynolds, too, because, I you know, we lose Bert. Bert comes in the first two acts, and he's so solid, and and he really owns every single scene. And uh, and then when things start falling apart, we kind of lose track of him too. He's he's kind of going through his own transformation, trying to understand this new world, this new business, and that's not as interesting, um, I think, for me as a viewer. And so we kind of lose track of him until he gets back into the director's chair and gets more excited about bringing the family back together. That redemption is what is what kind of clues me back into his his character. Yeah, it's the reconnection at the end that yeah. that brings the family back together in a place where they all have to make changes. And I think that's the a really nice strength as the film draws to a close is you have people rolling with the times. They've adapted to this new video world that they've had to adapt to. It's not what they want to do, but but damn it, Jack is still going to try to make as the the best films he can make with Dirk and Amber and Roller Girl and everybody starring in it. But Roller Girl, I mean, but uh, Amber um, is also going to kind of keep moving into directing some of her own stuff, whether it's documentaries about Dirk or a commercial for Buck, you know, and he's got his own stereo place. And so it's nice to see that they are still a family. They're still in the world that they're in, but they're all 
changing with the times and trying to do it now together. And I think that that was the strength of the way that the film ends. I, I think you're absolutely right. And and in some respects, I love it because it's the resolution, it's the circle of life, and we come back to this this sort of fantasy, and they're all back on set together, and they're they have learned something uh, from each of their escapades. They've gotten off the drugs, and we we didn't even talk about. It. I mean, there's a there is a significant amount of drug use in this in this film. I mean, they they do a lot of drugs, and the drugs are are damaging in a non-trivial way uh, in this film in terms of the lessons that they they have. These people have to learn, um, and so it, it's certainly not roses this porn business. But then we get back to the fantasy, right? The 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 circle is complete, and now we're back on set by the pool, and we're making a porn movie, and. Uh, and, and so that's it. And, and it, it, we're back to Cinderella's castle, uh, right, for exactly. lack of a better word. And, and so that's the, that's the part that's a little bit fantastical, particularly when you're looking at the, at, at, um, you know, uh, Amber Waves, um, uh, Julianne Moore's character, her, her storyline, which we didn't talk about that, you know, one of the reasons that she is so eager to take on this maternal role for all of these other kids on set is because, she was unable to fulfill her maternal role in her own family. Her husband left her and took her son, uh, and so she's going through the the kind of rigmarole with the court of of trying to get access to her uh, child again. And the the uh, as it turns out, the judge in her we get a little bit of uh, of a hearing with her, uh, and and the judge. Uh, is uh, played by uh, another porn actress named uh, Veronica Hart. Veronica Hart went through very similar uh, child custody issues um, in in her real life, and so she actually uh, her little cameo is a- actually autobiographical, and uh, so to speak, as we as we see that you know just how little respect these these actors in the porn industry um, uh, were were getting in the through the eyes of this film. Yeah, yes, but at the same time, I also would say, I mean, they may not be getting the respect, but at the same time, it is a lifestyle that they've chosen to live that doesn't necessarily make for a great family situation. And it's really painful to watch Amber have to go through the custodial battle that she's going through. Um, but at the same time, I do, in, in at least in context of the fil- film, I feel like it's the right decision that the judge ends up making, you know, that and, and her and her husband ended up making is that, you know what, it's not the place that you should be raising a son. It's a terrible environment for him. And to that end, it's it's a painful situation for her to have to deal with. But um, I think that that's another element that makes the family that they have found work so well. Oh, Andy, you and your armchair judgery. That's right. Uh, you probably would have said the same thing about Buck. Buck, if you were the banker, and so Buck I, Buck goes in with his wife and says, "I want to. I need a loan. I'm starting this new business. I have all my paperwork is in order." And the guy says, "No, we don't endorse pornography." You probably would have said, "No, wouldn't you?" Let's well, see. There, I would. <laughs> that one doesn't make any sense to me at all because it's <laughs> like you're clearly, you know, you've got the good business sense. So sure, <laughs> good business sense, and you know, obviously, you know something about the equipment. That's right, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> the TK421. Uh, that was a nice nod, too. I that was that. a nice little nod, yes. Uh, anyhow. Um, th- yeah, I thought that was. Uh, I thought those were two, uh, uh, both really powerful sequences in different ways um, uh, for me. Yes, uh, absolutely. So they did a great job there. Oh, you know, we should talk about Mark Wahlberg. 
He's pretty good. This was uh, so good. He he really is. I mean, this was um, he had already kind of left the Marky Mark name that had gone um, a few years before when he started uh, acting um, in some other films that, uh, you know, he wasn't in anything that big. Um, Renaissance Man and Fear and uh, Basketball Diaries, I think it was probably where he got a little bit more attention. Well, that's what um, got him this role. It is. And it was actually, um, I think Anderson wanted uh, Leonardo DiCaprio right. after seeing him in Basketball Diaries to play this character. But he had kind of already signed on to play in Titanic, which is you know, probably a pretty good choice to have made. Uh, but he said, "Hey, what about uh, what about Mark?" And it, you know, and Anderson really liked that idea, and and uh, met with him, and it worked well, and it was a great, a great role for him to kind of kickstart his acting career to show that he actually could do things other than just be Marky Mark, fronting the Funky Bunch. Yeah, I, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about Wahlberg in this movie. Um, it, he, I think, does. Uh, an absolutely legendary transformation over the course of of these two and a half hours from being the young dumb busboy um, to being the guy who's uh, you know com- whose life has completely fallen apart, getting beaten up by the by those guys in the trucks. Uh, oh, you know, in the parking yeah, lot. That ends up being an incredibly scene. painful sequence to watch. Um, you know, as you look at how far his his life has kind of unraveled, and and so um, you know, for for all the comments about you know entourage and transformers and you know where mark Wahlberg is now this film uh showcases just some real natural raw untrained talent uh as an actor and he i thought he was just delightful to watch on screen and it was also a great way to kind of break the uh the advertising calvin klein sort of um stuff that he had been doing and to kind of say you know yes that's kind of something that you know people were paying attention to but look, there's a lot more to me than just my body, and let me show you how I can use that to my advantage in this movie. Well, that's one of the things he'd said was, uh, you know, when he first met Anderson, this is, again, according to the Anderson in the Charlie Rose interview, he said, you know, I sat down with Mark, and I said, what do you think of the script? And Mark said, well, I've only read 30 pages of it. And he said, well, I was really mad. Uh, you know, I thought, you really want this role, and you're only going to read 30 pages of it? And Mark comes back, and he says, uh, look, I, I just want to know I really love these first 30 pages. I love them. And before I really fall in love with this part, I want to know, do you want me just because I'm the guy who will get in his underwear? Uh, or do you want me because you think there's something I can really deliver to the role? And I think that ends up being a really kind of transformational moment. According to Anderson, he says, you know, I don't know from nothing. I, I wanted you because I saw you in Basketball Diaries, and and uh, I, I think you were great, and you stole the role from Leo. Uh, you know, it's it was, uh, or, or you stole the, the film from Leo. I thought you were just terrific. Um, so we'll put that Calvin Klein stuff behind him. Ends up being, uh, I think, a really uh, kind of prophetic choice uh, for Wahlberg's career. It was it was just so worth it. And then you get, you know, he's he's had so many other, like, great, uh, great roles since the then, happening. right? The, the, uh, Three Kings. <laughs> Oh yes, Three Kings, Perfect Storm, so good. I really liked Perfect Storm. Uh, So you know, I I think I I enjoy him uh, in in so many of the films that he's done. There are others that I don't, uh, but so many of them that I I do. You know, The Departed. Yeah, we'll be talking uh, about that one soon. Yeah, uh, so I I think there's a lot to to like in his career, and and of course one of my very very favorite comedies uh, is is Ted. I know I'm alone. 
I know. <laughs> I still haven't even I, seen it. No man is. I may be an island. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but but again, just showing that he's gone uh, so well from different genres too, like the dramatic like this to action mm-hmm. to comedy. I mean, he is all over the place and he can handle it all really well. Yep, absolutely. Um, all right. Julianne what? Moore, I, I love her in this. This is her first uh, Oscar nomination also. Um, and really, it just has gone on to prove that she um, definitely deserves it. I mean, she's just great in everything she does. This is the first of her two times working with um, Paul Thomas Anderson, second time being Magnolia. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, she's just, she's great. I mean, she had, God, last year was a good year for her. She won an Oscar. She was in um, Hunger Games. I mean, just, you know, she's just keeps getting better and better. William H. Macy, uh, we talked a little bit about him, um, ends up being the the cuckold uh, in the film and uh, in in a, Right in the midpoint of the film, uh, the New Year's party. Right, uh, the reason that we, this is on our New Year's list. Right, he uh, he goes in and once again discovers his wife at this New Year's party. Uh, Nina Hartley is uh, having sex with another man, and so he in another legendary tracking shot. First, he's looking for her. He opens the door, finds her. He closes the door and walks calmly out to his car uh, where he gets a gun and he comes back in, shoots her, shoots the man she's with, uh, man or men, we don't ever actually see them, walks back down the hall, smiles at the party and shoots himself uh, in the mouth. And it is incredibly, again, you know, that that the tonal shift from uh, what is a, a fun party, everybody's gathering at the party, the locus of attention is way off by the pool, uh, it, to incredibly violent locus of attention right in the middle of the hallway of the entry hall of the house. Uh, it happens, ends up happening really fast uh, and gets really violent um, and, and startlingly real. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. It, it's, it's a great tool to use i hate using the word tool but it's a great t- tool in the in the screenwriting in the screenplay here to kind of kick off the huge switch to the 80s into the darkness like you know yeah yeah john c riley just love him he's just so so great and uh, another actor who's proven his versatility in l- a lot of different genres um I think he's uh, he's just so fun to watch. I, I pretty much enjoy him in anything he does. He's a utility player in this film. He doesn't really have that transformation. He no. He you know, but but we're introduced to him in a in a, a game of sort of verbal one-upsmanship that is is uh, really uh, it's worth paying attention to. It's a it's a funny little bit of script, and uh, he and Mark Wahlberg talking about over margaritas, talking about how much they squat, how much they bench. Uh, and and then the dive uh, sequence, the <laughs> where he's talking about, uh, you know, uh, the mistakes that Mark makes uh, jumping into the pool, um, is is really great, and it it sort of sets the tone for this for I I think um, a whole sequence of people wanting to make sure they look cool in the eyes of others. Yeah, and uh, and with this group of people too, yeah. I think it, it's 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 a critical thing. I mean, it's. <laughs> Not just the porn industry, really, but 
actors in general. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's something that they latch onto is is kind of that that need to be accepted and and all of that. I mean, not that I want to make it seem like it's just them. I mean, pretty much. Well, yeah, because likes that, to feel you accepted, know, right? It's a similar vibe in American Psycho that we've you know we've sort of talked about peripherally Absolutely. before, which is this idea of I need to be so cool in the eyes of others, and that was very much an '80s trope, right? I mean, that was a less than zero. That was a these are this is that that's kind of the thing we're celebrating here is just how well we're appreciated in the eyes of others and how futile that search ends up being the quest yeah. for appreciation ends up being right right uh you mentioned philip seymour hoffman uh, already philip baker hall we kind of touched on uh, he's been in a number of uh, anderson's films ricky jay pops in and he's oh, always fun to yes. see yes ricky jay is the cinematographer cameraman yeah and uh it's nice to uh see he doesn't actually do any magic in the film, but it's just funny that there is magic in the film with him, which I find funny because he's a kind of he's renowned magician. Renowned magician, and it's John C. Riley as Reed Rothschild, who's ultimately a dope, but pulls off some pretty funny <laughs> tricks. <laughs> yeah, and his conversation with Buck about the evil forces and everything. That's yes. just a yeah. great little bit. Yeah. That's fun. And um, and Heather Graham. I mean, I, I enjoy Heather Graham... It's she's an interesting actress, and I, I just don't I don't know I, I I enjoy some of the stuff that she's done, but she's she just seems to have kind of gotten stuck in stuff because of her looks. At least that's my impression, and I uh, I think that there may be more to her. I just don't know if she's ever really had a huge chance. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think back to you know could I could I say my favorite Heather Graham movie? This would probably be it. It's probably this is probably mine as well. E- either that, or I mean, I, I did like her in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. I thought she was very funny in that. She I was. She, she was, was very funny. Really funny in Bowfinger. I have no memory of it. Saw it a couple and, of times. No memory of it. I mean, she's she's been in a wide variety of stuff, and yeah. I, I think that uh, she has kind of shown that she could do stuff. But um, you know, she seems to have really kind of, uh, you know, things like The Hangover. Those are the things that stick out to me, and I don't know if those are things that. Uh, that's too bad because I think I'm I think I'm with you. Like there there's probably more. Uh and she just hasn't she's she's been a bit pigeonholed. Um and then Burt Reynolds. I mean, I know we we already talked about him a little bit, but it was an interesting project for him to take on. And he definitely kind of butted heads with uh Anderson during the production of this. I think that they that in retrospect, I think Anderson and the actors, the the younger actors, they felt that he was uh, really kind of not connecting because he was a different generation of of actor. You know, he was a, a much older actor coming on to work with all these young kids on this project. He didn't necessarily get the project. And afterward, when he saw the cut of it, I mean, it was just kind of a, a legendary thing where he said, I can't believe, you know, I was in this garbage. He fired his agents for letting him be in it. And then he goes on to win a Golden Globe for it, get tons of accolades for the film. I mean, I can't remember how many how many different uh, different awards he was nominated for or won for his performance in this film. I think he won six awards uh, for playing in this film and was nominated for four more. So, I mean... Uh, no, I'm I'm wrong. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He was he won ten awards for this film, and uh, was nominated for four more. Um, so yeah. he got a lot of accolades for this film after he had kind of bagged on it and said that he was just you know so upset for having been a part of it. And so it's a, it's an interesting perspective, and I think a lot of that just came from you know him feeling like he had 
been duped a lot um, in his career and everything. But I mean, I think he's great in this film. I, I enjoy him so much. I think he brings a lot of that heart to it and to that family nature of the film. Best film since Hooper. <laughs> I don't even know what Hooper is. Oh, Andy. <laughs> really? No, what is it? Sonny Hooper? No. Oh, nuts. I, that's, I've, uh, I've seen more of his, I mean, oddly enough, I've seen a number of his films in the in the 70s and 80s that were more like The White Lightning and The uh, Gator, Smoking the Bandit, uh, Cannonball Run. This was, this was his chance. I think Hooper was his chance for him to take the Smoking the Bandit kind of character and age him and be a little bit more sober uh, and, or somber, I think, a performance. And so he plays this aging stuntman, and he is, uh, he is uh, upstaged by the uh, plucky upstart stuntman played by, yes, your favorite and mine, Jan Michael Vincent. Oh, well, that's I, I got a so Jan Michael Vincent reference in. Uh, Sally go. Field is back in this one. Uh, Brian Keith. I mean, it's a great cast. I uh, I really like this movie. I think it's under uh, underappreciated. Uh, in, in this. So you need to add Hooper to your list because it's a fun one. 1978. I'll have to. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think he's great in some of the stuff. Deliverance. I mean, he's just great in that film. That's a, a solid, solid film. Um. But uh, yeah, man, I think he, uh, I mean, up through All Dogs Go to Heaven, I, I kind of watched <laughs> some of his stuff and then uh, he kind of disappeared. I, I actually really enjoyed him in Striptease. I actually thought he was really funny in that <laughs> Vaseline in his boots and everything. I mean, he, he was pretty funny. I mean, you know, he's been in a lot of a lot of things and some of them don't work as well as others, but he's yeah. a, you know, he's fun to watch on screen. I do enjoy watching him. I do too. And this film I think was a chance for him to come back and do something of some great substance. And I think he did. It's unfortunate it happened kind of with, with such agita around it, but uh, he delivered a, a performance that's just for him. It's for the ages. I mean, I think he he's, he absolutely gave us an icon in yeah. Jack Horner. Yeah. He was offered a role in Magnolia, but uh, turned it down. No surprise, I guess, because yeah. they weren't getting along. But uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman ended up working in five um, Anderson films. He only did not work in There Will Be Blood and Inherent Vice, and I guess anything now that will happen afterward. But um, uh, yeah, any idea who, because uh, PTA is one of those guys who likes to work with actors that he's worked with before. Mm-hmm. Um, so Philip Seymour Hoffman is the the one who's been in most of his films with five. Any idea who is next with number with four films? Um, geez, uh, it's, you're saying that, so it must be a surprise. I don't know if it's a surprise, but it's like, oh, okay. I guess I guess I can see that it wasn't uh, wasn't who I was expecting. Um, uh, gosh, I you know I don't know. Um, it's Melora Walters. I. <laughs> I, uh, who is Melora Walters? She is uh, Buck Swope's wife. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, totally. She hooks up with John C. Riley in Magnolia. She was also in Hard Eight, and she was also in The Master. Wow. I, yeah, I I would not have said that. I didn't yeah. really say anything. But he's worked with. <laughs> it's mostly because like he's worked with. I don't know. Between Boogie Nights and Magnolia, it was like the same cast, pretty much. Yeah, right. Those two films had so many of the same people. Absolutely. 
you know, I was that my first response, which I knew was going to be wrong, but I thought it would be funny if it was Luis Guzman because he's so good. <laughs> he um, is. And he's got to be up there, right? I mean, he was. He's only in three. Oh, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, and Punch Drunk Love. I'll be darned. Yeah. All right. Well, you win this round, Andy. Um, did you want to? We already talked about uh, cinematography, but we should mention that it was Robert Elswit who is the cinematographer here, because who, it was uh, so so good. Because it was so so good, and we've talked about him a couple times before with uh, Syriana and Red Belt and The Town. Oh yes, and The Born Legacy. He's done a lot of he's stuff. Done a lot and, of stuff. Gosh, he's so good. Yeah, so good. Uh, we should talk about Michael Penn, who put together the uh, soundtrack. Yeah, and has a brief cameo. Um, you know, I. I like the music. I think that it works fine for the the context of the film here. You are not excited enough about it. It's a great soundtrack. It it is. I I think that the thing is that I get so caught up in the fantastic music selections all through the film that the actual score itself kind of disappears a little bit for me, um, which is probably not a fair thing to say, but it just it's true. That's what happens, and and so. Um, while I do like the music that Michael Penn does here, I just I end up walking away from this film just singing all of the fantastic songs. No, yeah, I mean you're right, you're right. I still I I think it's I think it's great. I actually really love that the film begins with over black with kind of this this dark circus tune, and it kind of that tune comes back toward the end, which yeah. really lends a lot to the nature of this world. I think yeah, kind I of think this so kind too. of this more it's kind of a morbid circus really long uh opening i mean it's not legendarily long but it's it's uncomfortably long before we're introduced to the hot tracks yes uh, all right let's talk about the money the dollars yeah yeah this film um you know considering everything um it did pretty well for itself it was a long long movie as we said it was about what was it two and a half hours right yeah two and a half hours yeah, um, this film, um, and that obviously is going to hurt its uh, this uh, cost per uh, profit per finished minute. But it cost fifteen million. This was a film that um, uh, I think it was Michael DeLuca at New Line said because um, PTA really got screwed over when he did his previous film Sydney, which was re released and recut as Hard Eight. And he did finally get his cut out there after I think he submitted it uh, directly to Khan. Uh, without the permission or without the approval of the company that uh, released it. But um, because of the problems he had with that film, when he was pitching this film, everybody really liked the script, but he said, look, I want this film to be made the way I'm going to make it. It's going to be over three hours and it's going to be NC-17. <laughs> and DeLuca said, you can have it, but um, I'll give you $15 million to make it, but you can only have one of those. It either has to be R or it has to be under three hours. And PTA gave in on the rating and said, okay, I'll, I'll take it as a challenge to make a movie about the porn industry that is going to be R-rated. <laughs> and so he took that as a challenge, and he still came under three hours. But So he was given $15 million to make this movie, which in today, today's dollars is about $21.8 million. So you know, it's a, it's a decent budget, but it's not huge, especially for a long movie no, like this. No, yeah, that's what I was going to Especially for a long movie with such a big cast of like B plus A minus players, yeah, absolutely, and some that have gone on to be A plus by yeah, now. Yeah, you know? right. Um, it ended up making domestically about twenty six point four million dollars, 
and uh, about 16.7 million internationally. And then adjusted, when you look at adjusted total gross, that is about uh, 62.5 million. So the film did well for itself. It was long, so adjusted profit per finished minute was about 268,000. So, you know, it uh, obviously gave this this young PTA a career. Well, it's totally worth it. Absolutely. Let's let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all of our films. This I think what is this? Two hundred and seventeen films? Oh goodness, is that, that what name? makes it that's what it is. Two hundred and seventeen films that we have done on the flick chart. You should check it out and uh, start up your own account if you haven't already and make sure you uh, start with this one. I think this one's gonna I th- I'm pretty excited about this one. This is our first film of two thousand seventeen. Uh, and I think we're kicking it off with a bang. It's a it's a good one. Let's it's, kick I'm it just off. gonna say this is, and I'm gonna make a prediction. This will be our top rated film of 2016 by the end of this show. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. All right, first up, Boogie Nights or the Bad Seed? Oh, Boogie Definitely Nights. Definitely Boogie Nights. Yeah, absolutely, Boogie Nights. Or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Boogie, boogie nights. <sighs> boogie nights. Boogie nights. I'm going to say Eternal Sunshine. I'm going to take you to it. Okay, let's do it. One. One. Two. two three. three paper. paper. One. One. Two. two three, three. Paper. Scissors. <sighs> See, you're screwing it. Right now, you're screwing it. This is on you. It is on me. I'll take that. Boogie Nights or The Killing? Boogie Nights. Little Stanley Kubrick. Um, Yeah, I'll say Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights or About a Boy? Boogie Nights. I certainly get more pleasure out of watching About a Boy, but I'll give it to Boogie Nights for the filmmaking prowess. Doesn't matter. You've already or, screwed it. Or bravura. <laughs> Bravura. <laughs> Booking <laughs> Boogie Nights are for a few dollars more. Um Boogie Nights. I'll say Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights or Ronin. Ronin. And I'll say Boogie Nights. Okay. I'll go Boogie Nights. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I don't have to feel guilty about it. <laughs> That's right. Listen to you. Aye, aye, aye. All right. Well, we got Boogie Nights or Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, I'm 100% Boogie Nights. 110. I'll say Sleepless in Seattle. (laughs) But I'll give you Boogie Nights, (laughs) and I don't have to feel guilty about it. (laughs) Well played, sir. And there we are, number 56 out of 217. That is too low. You broke this one. uh, That's on me. Oh. Sorry. Yeah. You're going to regret that in the morning. <laughs> I don't know if I will. I don't know. I, I'm really torn. I really like both of these films quite a bit. It's just that Boogie Nights, it just is, it, it just is a hard film to watch um, just because of the subject. I always end up feeling uh, just dirty, and I feel like I've, I've crawled out of the gutter after I watch it. And as much as I enjoy everything that's going on in it, I love the performances, I love the story, I love the, the, uh, the filmmaking... It is a dirty subject, and it's just I, I get out done with it, and I'm like, okay, I need to go take a shower now. <laughs> All right. No, I mean, I, I hear it. Some people are just wired for this stuff, and some people are not. 
There you go. <laughs> you could you could tell your family, don't worry, kids. I'm not wired for porn. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we uh what's your uh letterboxed on this one? Uh, I think I'm at four stars. I'm four and a half. All right, four, four and a half. That'll that'll give us a four and a half rating. Yes, it will. <laughs> And I'm okay with that. I, I, I feel four and a half is very fair for this film. Great. It is a great, great It really film. is. Very it really is. Film. Yeah. Um, and uh, I should say, Andy, where, where do we go? Now that we have done our, we've introduced, <laughs> introduced the next real 2016 with a bang, so to speak. Yes, indeed. Where do we go from here? A bit here? of an explosion. <laughs> <laughs> because we are simple people. We're very simple people. That's all it takes. Where do we uh, where do we go from here? We're going to kick off a new David Mamet series, um, but this is going to be a David Mamet series of films that he did not direct. Uh, there's scripts that he wrote. Um, I think Glenn, Glenn Ross is the only one that is based on an actual play of his. I think the rest were projects that he wrote specifically for the screen. Uh, we're going to be doing The Verdict first, and then The Untouchables, Glengarry Glenn Ross, and ending with The Edge. Mm. Good ones. Should be a lot of fun. It'll yeah. be a fun little series. I and if you I know, recall, the nice you, were, thing, you were looking forward to this series more than the last time we addressed uh, David Mamet. I enjoy David Mamet quite a bit. It's Rebecca Pigeon <laughs> <laughs> that I have problems with, and when he's directing, I mean, it's his wife, so he always puts her in. And these, you know, the filmmakers don't feel obligated to put her in it, so I'm much more inclined to watch these ones. <laughs> It's terrible of me to say. It is. Just, it is terrible, but uh, all right. You get to live it's with It's just yourself. true. Right. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, the, I'm very excited about that, and uh, so make sure to check that out. That's happening uh, it's happening next week. Absolutely. Anything else we need to talk about? Anything Should we tell people that we have uh, our first speakeasy is going to also be released next week, right? I think we should tell people that. Yes, we should. Introducing our new series. We're very excited about the, the uh, TNR speakeasy, our very first guest. Abraham Ben Ruby is going to be uh, bringing his one of his very favorite films to the table to talk about. Uh, again, if you if you missed our big announcement, you're not sure what the Speakeasy is. It's pretty much like this show, except we're bringing somebody from the industry, actor, director, writer, uh, to share with us films that have inspired them. And uh, Abe is a he's an all around great guy. He has. Uh, you know, if you followed Abe at all from his career on uh, ER or, or, or the many films that he has done, he was just on Bosch on Amazon. You may have seen him. Uh, he is about to um, be in a new film with uh, uh, Chris Pine called "The Finest Hours," released in January. We'll be doing that at Film Board. He has very uh, broad tastes, uh, but he tends to jive with the uh, with the more supernatural. Um, I, I think the the weirder films the the darker films. And so when he came to us to tell us that he wanted to join us to talk about Peter O'Toole's My Favorite Year, I think it's fair to say we were blown away. It, it, it definitely didn't fit kind of a lot of the, the, the films that he uh, really enjoys. But Certainly um, did not. But the conversation we had was, was surprising and interesting, and it was a great film. Neither of us had seen this film, right? Nope. Neither of us had seen My Favorite Year. And so it was a great way to be introduced to the film with a wonderfully charismatic and warm and charming and generous person. So uh, that is also going to be released next week, uh, my favorite year on the TNR Speakeasy. So be on the lookout for that. Absolutely. That's all we've got. Thanks, everybody. I, uh, I got to go to bed. I've got to go look in the mirror at my one special thing.
Okay, so Amazon, um, you know, I looked for a, I looked for a low rating, and this is one of those films where there aren't that many, and most of them are about the DVD. There's a lot of love for this movie. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of love. So I've got uh, one uh, Joseph writes in, and this was just uh, last year, December 14th, 2014. Well, I gave it... Uh, oh, the title is, At times, it appears to be a move, moving toward a remarkably moving portrayal of a sad, interesting industry. Well, I gave it two stars, not one. At times, it appears to be moving toward a remarkably moving portrayal of a sad, interesting industry. <laughs> I wonder got that. It is often so strong and stunning that the many easy comic moments may be missed. Burt Reynolds, who at first appears to be giving a subtle, tired, destroyed portrait, becomes simply bland and boring. Philip Seymour Hoffman is brilliantly unsettling and sympathetically disturbing. Ultimately, there is too much gratuitous everything, making the adventure too long and ineffective. I think it's funny that uh, Joseph picks out Burt Reynolds, who deserves to be picked out, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who ends up being sort of an ancillary character and no mention of Mark Wahlberg at all, which is, is sad. interesting. Um, and it's, it's funny. It's like oh. that. There's that great game. It, 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 uh, we that um, uh, uh, Doug Benson plays on uh, now on um, um, Douglas movies. Douglas movies. You know, there's that game which is like the cable cable billing game where he makes people guess the movie based on the two title characters that his cable company puts in the in their TV guide about a movie. <laughs> and they're just random, like, bottom billing people <laughs> that you would right. never have guessed be in the movie. That's kind of what this feels like. It's the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern exactly. version of the, <laughs> the exactly. review of the film. Exactly. Anyway. Right. Well, it's funny because uh, yours said it is too much gratuitous everything. Mine uh, gave it a one star, and it's uh, J.A.S. Hill, or Jashil, perhaps gave it one star said disappointing sorry boring don't understand what all the hoopla was about going from gratuitous everything to boring not enough anything (laughs) not enough anything there's nothing going on in this film it's uh i don't know what that joshil was looking for (laughs) because there's a lot in this movie and uh to find it boring is definitely not uh what i think anybody would no, say yeah, I, don't, the... I don't see it but there you go once again thank you amazon i've been podcasting since 2006 in that time i've tried countless hosting platforms but in august 2022 we switched to transistor to power all of our shows here at true story fm and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.